What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Insurrectioning Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, Jay here. Just wanted to remind you that we have a Discord. You can come talk to us, recommend show topics, discuss episodes, and have fun. The link will be in the show notes, and enjoy the show. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Insurrectioning Podcast. Today, we've just got a duo episode with me and Jay. Um, a while back, we did an episode called Nationalization and the Calculation Problem, which is a very economics-heavy episode where we talked about something that's very central to Austrian economic theory, which is the socialist calculation problem, the, the problem of economic calculation, and then we applied that to current events. We're kind of doing the same thing today, uh, and I can, I can link to that episode, by the way. I don't remember exactly what number it was, like 17 or 18, maybe. What do you mean you'll link to it? I'm, I'm the editor. <laughs> Yeah, but I have access to the Anchor account, too. I can link things when I want. Yeah, when you want, but you only go, like, fix a title. <laughs> it's literally yeah, all you've to, ever... I go, to fix, I go to fix your errors within the title. <laughs> oh, yeah, one typo. Oh, the horror. Uh-huh. Yeah, it is horrible. Anyway, today we've got something pretty similar to that. We're going to be talking about business cycle theory and how it applies to the um, massive Fed intervention in the economy and stimulus packages and all that that's been going on, um, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. But even before that, they were trying to prop up an economy that was really uh, on its last legs, not a, not a healthy economy at all. Uh, so what we're going to start with is I'm going to go over kind of the basics of business cycle theory, why a business cycle happens. And then um, Jay's going to talk about how current events kind of play into that. And we'll just go from there. So to start off with, it's helpful to compare uh, what we have now to what a, a free market would look like, what sound money would look like instead of a fiat currency, because um, that's, that's really where the root of our, our problems comes from. So Rothbard's theory of banking was that there could be two different types of banks, basically. And you could have it in the same institution, essentially, but you know have two different divisions, basically. And you, when you sign up for a, an account with them, you know which one you're going to. Um, so one would just be deposit banking, where, which is where you just store your money there. You pay a small fee over time, uh, and they, you, you pay the bank to keep your money safe, basically. You can come withdraw it at any time and take out your money. They might give you, you know, paper slips, something like that, um, basically bank notes that show you have money in the bank. and those could be traded in place of the money sometimes, but uh, you could always come back and redeem those banknotes on par or at par on demand um, at any time. That's, uh, that's one option. Then the other division of banking would be uh, basically loan banking, where the bank serves as a true financial inter- intermediary, where uh, you deposit your money for a certain amount of time, uh, like time deposits is what Rothbard called them occasionally, and uh, you're not able to get your full amount back until after a certain time. Uh, and in the meantime, and you, you're aware of this through contract, the bank loans out those deposits to other people. And the benefit of doing this, because you're like, why would anyone do that if they have to just wait to get their money back longer? And they can't redeem it um, at par on demand. Well, the reason for doing that is when the bank loans it out to other people, they you know choose investors that they think, um, not investors, they choose uh, lindies that they think would uh, produce the most profit, basically, have the, have the best investments uh, with your money. And so when those people pay back interest on the loans that were made of your money, 
then that interest, uh, you know, the bank subtracts part of it for themselves, and that's how the bank gets a profit. And then they can give some of that to you. So you actually earn interest on your deposits in exchange for uh, giving them to the bank in order to loan out to other people. That's a completely sound banking system. That would be with hard money like gold, silver, any, anything like that. What we have now is very different, where there's something called fractional reserve banking. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail about what that is, but basically banks can lend out notes for money to multiple people. So if they only have uh, you know, $100 or 100 gold coins or whatever in the bank, then they, they can give you a, a bank note for redemption at par on demand for the person who deposited those 100 gold coins. But they also give a bank note for another portion of those gold coins to someone else. And that's how they that's how they loan out money, basically. And then, you know, if both people try to d- redeem those notes at the same time. The bank can't pay out both demands. That's what fractional reserve banking is. And so uh, something on top of this is the Federal Reserve. And there are lots of legal and economic reasons how the Federal Reserve props up federal or fractional reserve banking in the United States and how central banks elsewhere in the world prop up fractional reserve banking as well. So I won't. Again, I won't go into too heavy detail, but basically we have a fiat currency, which means it's created and controlled by the federal government, which basically delegates that power to the Federal Reserve. And uh, we have fractional reserve banking, where banks don't have to keep um, 100% reserves to pay back all of the claims to the money that they hold. Now, what this results in is an expansion of the credit supply because basically banks create new money out of thin air or new, uh, what Mises called fiduciary media, which are the, the redemption notes that people can bring to banks for the actual money in, in them, which get traded on financial markets and stuff too, and can basically replace the actual money. So with a combination of fiat currency and fiduciary media like that, what ends up happening is an expansion in the credit supply over time mostly caused by the Federal Reserve. Now, when you expand credit, what happens is certain, certain investments seem more profitable than they would have otherwise been because with a greater supply of money, the price of money, which is the interest rate, goes down. And when you have a lower interest rate, an artificially low interest rate, that is, then projects that take longer... Uh, seem more profitable than they otherwise would have been because with a higher interest rate then uh, long-term projects cost more over time because you're paying you know on an annual or quarterly basis whatever whatever the interest rate on that specific loan whenever it's paid so as you as projects get longer you get to pay more interest on your loan that you use to finance those projects so when there's an artificially low interest rate um, created by what's basically an inflation Uh, the expansion of fiduciary media and money printing by the Fed rather than loans backed by sound money in 100% reserve banks, then what you get is a bunch of projects that shouldn't actually have been undertaken according to society's time preference. Now, time preference is basically uh, this concept that we prefer uh, any given satisfaction sooner rather than later. And that's just that's logically implied through action, because, you know, if if there was no time preference, then taking an action now would give you the exact same uh, would mean the exact same thing to you as taking that same action 80 years from now. So 
if there was no time preference, then why wouldn't you just wait to take it 80 years from now? Well, obviously, we don't do that. So we know we have some form of time preference. We prefer sooner uh, satisfactions rather than later. And in terms of banking, what that means is when people have lower time preferences, that means they put less of a discount on future goods. Uh, and so in terms of consumption and saving, they save more and consume less, which leaves uh, loanable funds available for, for banks to loan out to entrepreneurs and leaves more resources for those entrepreneurs' projects available. Now, when you have uh, artificially low interest rates and artificially expanded credit because of uh, the Federal Reserve and fractional reserve banking, then the time preference of society appears lower to entrepreneurs than it actually is. So people are still consuming the same amount, but the interest rate drops. And so entrepreneurs start you know, engaging in projects that take longer and use up resources along the way, of course, because all production uses resources. But then as they get closer to, uh, to completing these projects, it turns out that there's not enough resources available to complete them because there are still lots of resources being used in consumption. There's no real saving that's uh, financing these projects. It was just inflation driving it the whole time. That period before they realized their mistake is the boom in the boom-bust cycle. That's what the U.S. economy has been in since about 2009. We've had artificially low interest rates held down by the Federal Reserve, and a bunch of projects got started where they seemed profitable because of these low interest rates. But eventually, we're going to find that there aren't enough resources to finish them because people are still consuming just as much or even consuming more. Because when interest rates fall artificially, then people might take out loans for consumer purposes, like uh, go into credit card debt or something like that. That doesn't happen in, uh, in a sound money system where the interest rate lowers naturally because the interest rate has to lower via lower time preference of consumers. They're actually consuming less uh, to make the interest rate go down. But in the case of the United States and central banking, when you get the boom-bust cycle, that interest rate's been pushed down artificially. There's no increased savings. It's just inflation. And consumption hasn't gone down at all. So eventually we're going to get to a point where uh, there aren't enough resources to finish all these unprofitable projects. And there's a, what Rothbard called a cluster of errors, where a bunch of entrepreneurs fail at around the same time. I mean, we always see entrepreneurs fail, right? There's, there's always businesses that just weren't good investments and they don't work out. But it's odd to see a bunch fail at exactly the same time. It, it makes it seem, or it indicates to us that something happened uh, when they all started their projects that induced a bunch of people to make the wrong investments all at the same time. Uh, and that's, that's what the Austrian business cycle theory shows. So when that happens, when, all those, when that cluster of errors reveals itself, that's the end of the boom and the beginning of the bust because suddenly you get a massive drop in production as all these productive undertakings fail because they weren't actually going to be profitable ever and there aren't enough resources to complete them. And that drop in production is where you get the recessionary phase. That's the bust. And now this is where the recovery has to happen. The bust is actually the healthy part. That's where we were liquidating all the things that shouldn't have been undertaken in the first place. And now what has to happen is the factor prices that have been inflated by increased bidding by entrepreneurs who are just using 
you know, in, inflation and not actual sound investments. They, those factor prices have to decrease as all the projects fail and um, the, the basically demand for all the input factors decreases. Uh, so the prices fall back to levels where new investments can now be profitable. And those new investments, when they're actually, you know, they seem profitable to entrepreneurs, then those are productive investments. Those are things that actually create value for consumers and use the resources available to society wisely. Now, the problem is what we did after 2008's recession is just inflate even more. The Fed pumped so much money into the economy. I wish I had these statistics in front of me. But uh, instead they, of, I, I, I know how much they pumped in. I'll talk about that later. Yeah, you can talk about the specifics. So, yeah, they... They inflated a ton to try and bring us out of that. But what they did is basically, it, it's like when you have a heroin addict and they finally, you know, break the cycle or whatever, and they're jonesing and they just have to make it through the rough period before they can break the addiction. It's like right when they're about to break the addiction, you just shoot them up with more heroin and it makes them feel good, but you're not solving any problems. That was the, that, that's the economic equivalent of what the Fed did. At, in 2008 and 2009. And so instead of letting those factor prices fall, letting projects fail, letting banks fail that deserve to fail, we bailed everybody out and started a new fake boom just the same way the last boom started, which resulted in the housing crisis. Now we're in the middle of that boom still. We have no idea when it might end. You know, there are ways to estimate and stuff, but it's really just a guessing game. There's no telling when the cluster of errors might reveal itself. But we know it has to be on its way somewhere because we don't have a sound money system. We have a broken banking system and a fiat currency. And that's where we are now. Jay, you want to pick up? Uh, yeah. Okay, so first, before I get into the, like, the current events and the recent history of it, I'd like to add one thing that a lot of people leave out when we talk about the Austrian business cycle theory, which is what is the interest rate actually? Because that's something that's usually very vague and absent, and it's actually very important to explain which interest rate we're talking about, since that's what causes all of the problems. So when we're talking interest rates, there are a lot of interest rates in an economy. I mean, there's an interest rate for almost everything. There's interest rates for loans. There's interest rates for credit cards. But when we talk about interest rates in this context, we're actually referring to the thing called the federal funds rate, which in a central banking fractional reserve banking system, it is something that's necessary for the banks in order to meet any of their loans. So given the fact that in fractional reserve banking, banks do not have 100% of their reserves in the bank, they're usually short on money. So what do they do instead? They do this thing called overnight loaning, where one bank that has a surplus one day will lend to another bank who doesn't have a surplus and overnight. So then the next day, the bank that needs to hand out money has the available money while the other one gives away some of its surplus. But since this is a loan, there has to be an interest rate on it. So in a central banking system, this is not set by the banks themselves. Since they're constantly going into these negotiations, they don't want to be constantly dealing with, okay, what are we going to set the interest rate for this loan on? What about this loan? What about this loan? So instead, the central bank, in the case of Americans, the Federal Reserve, sets the overnight loan rate, which is the interest rate we're talking about. 
And that's important because that's going to tell you how eager a bank is to hand out a loan. Because if they're short on money, they're going to have to charge a higher interest rate on their actual loans to try and dissuade people from borrowing from them so they don't go under, so they don't cause a bank run with their branch. But if there is a low federal funds rate and they can constantly be liquidating each other and constantly giving each other money overnight at low interest rates, then they are very eager to hand out loans because they have more money to loan out and they're going to get more money off of it when people loan from them. So I think that's something that should be brought up a little more often when we talk about the Austrian business cycle theory. Because, I mean, it's something that even in an economics department, you don't learn until your second or third year of classes. Yeah, that's true. That's a good addition. And I also didn't really explain what the Federal Reserve's role is. So they control the money supply by messing with interest rates and stuff like that. They can, and they're also the lender of last resort. If uh, a bank is short on cash and needs a you know, needs basically a loan, then they go to the Federal Reserve and the Federal Reserve creates that out of thin air. It's also it's often referred to as the printer, but usually it's just digital. They just type in a bunch of ones and zeros on their computer and it appears in the, the bank's account, basically. And that's how money gets created as well, in addition to the whole fractional reserve thing that I talked about. All right. So, yeah. And um, you mentioned that the central bank does have control over the interest rates and obviously I mentioned that too, and they do it through inflation and they're the lender of last resort. So all that is tied together inherently, but it wasn't always necessarily inflation that it did to affect the interest rates. Just like the federal reserve all wasn't always targeting low federal funds rate. I mean, if you go back to the late 1970s and the early 1980s, Paul Volcker was the last Federal Reserve chairman to actually set interest rates above a certain level. And I think we talked about that with Sal, right? We did, yeah. Yeah. He was the last one where back then, interest rates for the federal funds rate, which led to all the other interest rates going up, were incredibly high. I mean, I remember talking with one of my professors about it, where he said that in the 1980s, if you got a mortgage for 15% annually, that was an insanely low amount. And right now, if a bank tried to sell you on a home mortgage for 15%, you would laugh in their face because you're looking at 6-7% is a high interest rate these days, which is absolutely insane. And that ties into you know, what happened in before 2008, between the period of the late 1990s to the early 2000s. But before that, oh, you guys on that? I was going to say, it's hard to imagine it going back up to that rate mm-hmm. ever again because... I mean, like Hayek explains in, um, in a, piece, a, ple- a piece excuse me, called Can We Still Avoid Inflation? Why uh, a gradually continuing inflation has to occur as well. So, and that's, that's where we are right now. Yeah, although if you get a credit card, the ARP on a credit card is still insanely high and people are still getting those four or five at a time, which is absolutely insane to me. Dear listeners of the show, if you're going to get a credit card, Get one and only use it to get the essentials and pay it off every single month. Otherwise, do not get it. It's a scam to keep you in debt, just like everything else in the central banking system. Yeah, I mean, the only, the only reason you should use a credit card is to buy uh, basically extremely expensive items that will get you a lot of reward points or whatever on your credit card. Only once you have the money to, to pay off that credit card at the end yeah. of the month, right after you use it. Yeah. Or only use it to get things like gas and groceries and then 
pay that off immediately at the end of the month so you build up a good credit rate. Right, exactly. Or credit score. But funnily enough, the central bank, of course, always inflated, but for the majority of its history, it was very tough for it to inflate. So what they had to do instead was actually play with the bond system. Because when you talk about something like the American debt to China, it's not necessarily that America went to the People's uh, Bank of China and said, give us $2 billion. What they said is, we are going to sell you these bonds, which is basically, it's a weird form of investment that is pretty much only common with with government now, but used to be used more by businesses, where you have this certification that if you invest this amount now, we are going to promise you at X point in time that we're going to give you your principal back along with whatever interest we agreed upon. Now, it could be something that they pay you a certain monthly interest and then you get your principal back at the end of that period. Or like with government bonds where they take the investment now, you see no payments until 10 years down the line, and then they are responsible to pay back plus the interest. Those bonds are very tricky, and they're still used to this day. I mean, don't get me wrong. They are used to affect the money supply, which is then in turn used to affect the interest rate, which is why the United States is in debt to pretty much every developed country in the world. Because our debt, our bonds, always had pretty much the highest rating a bond could get, triple A. But as we continue to inflate our money supply, which is one of the only ways to pay off the inordinate amount of debt this country has. The Federal Reserve continues inflating the money supply. They keep getting delayed on payments because it is just such an insanely large amount that the American credit rating is going down on the global level. There used, so, to, be a, there used to be a great Twitter account. I'll have to find it again. I don't know if it still exists. That was, uh, it was pretty friendly to Austrian economics. I don't know who ran it. It was anonymous, but it was basically like, quotes that aged well from before the financial crash or something and it was just it always uh would pull up quotes of politicians and central bankers from before the um 0708 housing crisis <laughs> and there was there's, there's one that i remember in particular that's like i think it was uh it was one of the fed one of the people on the fed board at the time and it was like we don't foresee any possible chance of uh U.S. credit ratings being downgraded or something like that. <laughs> and then yeah. it was, of course. Yeah. A year ago, when I was taking my money in banking class, our professor was talking about bonds. And America went from a AAA rating, which is the highest, to a AA, and America is teetering lower and lower. So it is very well possible that one day in the future, America will have a junk bond rating, and nobody will want to supply American debt anymore which will be catastrophic for the entire world because we are one of the backbones of the global economy. But so while the central bank still uses the bond system, mostly to, to keep funding debt so they don't have to inflate too much, they are still inflating up the ass yearly, which is where they are, like Porter said, originally they would actually physically print money, but since the 90s and the advent of more advanced computers, they're adding zeros in the accounts of large banks in this country, which then go out and loan the money. That's exactly right, yep. When you get... And here's the tricky thing about that money that makes this inflation so dangerous and how these people keep profiteering off this inflation. That money 
causes no inflation until it's spent. So, like, you know when leftists act like people just hoard money under a bed? And they're like, this is so terrible for the economy that all these rich people are hoarding their money? If they were actually hoarding their money, everybody would be better off because your dollar would be worth more. If someone gave you a $10 billion loan and you stuffed that under your mattress, you took $10 billion out of the economy, which has raised the value of everyone else's dollar by that much. Well, of course, not by that much, but on a relative scale. Yeah, of course, the, the stipulation here is that there's no apparent intent to, to spend the money. If you stash $10 billion under your mattress, but you you know your consuming patterns or whatever have made it clear that you might spend that in the next year, then prices aren't really going to um, you know reflect that. But if you just basically take it out of circulation permanently, then eventually, yeah, prices will adjust and the purchasing power of everyone else's dollars goes up. Mm-hmm. But that is not what happens. So these people that are at the top, the bankers and their buddies and all the big corporations that get that money first, get to spend it before the inflation has hit. So they get to buy at current prices. But the second that that newly printed money switches hands from those people who got it and just spent it into the people they bought from, that is when the inflation hits. So they get to enjoy purchasing at whatever the current price level is, but then they screw everyone else over immediately by putting that money into the hands of the economy. And I, I so really, they, yeah. I don't want to, you know, interject and contradict you here, but I wouldn't say immediately because, uh, you know, prices do start going up as soon as they start spending it. But it does take time to get it through the economy. Even you know the second people who get it which are, you know, the people that the corporations pay, which are, you know, their buddies in the supply chain mm-hmm. or whatever, and the, the banks, that the people that they lend to, um, even they are better off than most other people. But by the time it gets to the rest of us, uh, prices have already mostly adjusted. And this is called the yeah. Canyon effect. And, and when you consider that the money was basically created out of thin air, uh, it, you're, the, the, people, the first people who get it are getting something for nothing, essentially. And yeah, and it's a huge, it's a massive redistribution of wealth towards whoever gets the money first, which in our economy is towards the top. So it, it yeah, pro tip: if you ever get uh, asked by a leftist, uh, like why you hate poor people or something like that, because you want a free market, and that just results in the top one percent owning everything or whatever, tell them that's exactly what the central bank policy is doing right now, and that we want the opposite of that. <laughs> Uh, you know, we don't oppose wealth inequality just for the sake of opposing inequality like they do. But you, there are good reasons to believe that uh, a free economy and a sound money system would be much more horizontal and much more equal in terms of material wealth uh, than what we have now. And, and, it, a central, <laughs> and the establishment of a central bank was one of Marx's uh, core planks. <laughs> yeah, it's like the fifth plank of the <laughs> yeah. communist planks or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and this is called the Cantillon effect. That's C-A-N-T-I-L-L-O-N. I think it's French. Um, if you want to look up more on this, it's, it's uh, not something that gets talked about often. So I'm glad, glad you brought that up, Jay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you're right. It's not immediate, immediate. But especially when you take into consideration how this is something that's not happening once a year, but is happening constantly. 
you were talking about a constant flow of inflation occurring, where the people who get it first and the people that get it second and third, much like in fractional reserve banking, you know, the first person in a bank run to show up gets all of his money while the rest start getting receding less and less until the last person gets nothing. That yeah, it's not immediate, but it is something that's happening very regularly and to a point where you can pretty much see it as a constant stream. Yeah, so that's, that's a good with, way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, so with all that context out of the way, which is a lot of necessary context that people tend to leave out when they just go over the bare bones of the Austrian business cycle theory, the way it applies to the last economic crisis we had is exactly that that we've mentioned, that it was loose and easy credit caused by low federal funds rates. Because... In a mainstream economics program, they're going to try and tell you that in 1999, the United States repealed the Glass-Steagall Act that was established in about 1933. Now, if you look at what the Glass-Steagall Act is, it makes no sense at all how that would cause a giant credit bubble that would burst and put millions of Americans out of work and consolidate the power at the top. Because all it was is saying, basically, it was something along the lines of Investment banks can't also be uh, like loaning banks, I think. Yeah, it was separating commercial and investment banking. So it didn't say that they cannot be owned by the same bank franchise. All it said is that if you're an investment bank, you cannot, all, cannot also be simultaneously a commercial bank. Now, what kind of loans do commercial banks make? What's the difference? You might want to explain that. An investment bank is a bank that does what Porter mentioned earlier that fractional reserve banking does, that it makes investments into the economy. A commercial bank is the one that you're going to walk into, you're going to deposit money, that you're going to get a loan to buy a car or a house from. So basically they were saying that if you're a bank who is investing in businesses, you you cannot also be investing in consumers. How that leads to the housing crisis is something that can only be accomplished by the mental gymnastics of a mainstream Keynesian. (laughs) If you look at the actual story of what happened, there were far more federal programs that were trying to go against the market. Because starting under Clinton and continuing under George W. Bush, there was a program that wanted to get a house in the hands of every single American. If that sounds familiar, uh, think about other things where uh, politicians have talked about everybody deserves to what? Think about that in your head while Jay's talking. We'll come back to it later. Yeah, because there's a very pertinent one that is could very well be the next bubble that we see bursting. I personally think it will be. There, yeah, yeah. The Austrian economists have been warning about it. Uh, there are some differences on whether it'll be the bubble or if there are other ones that'll be worse, something like that. But yeah. I, I think the one I'm thinking of is going to be the worst one, but... We'll come back to that. I think so as well. But (laughs) so George Bush, and he was very proud of the housing rates going up. But with a limited supply of houses that are usually out of someone's budget, you know, you can't dip into your rainy day fund and buy a house. So there has to be something that has changed in the banking system to either affect the prices or affect the ability for a person to get a house. So banks. Originally, when they hand out a mortgage, they were able to discriminate. 
they were able to look at zip codes and go, okay, this is an area that gets an A rating. Very few people, like little to none, have defaulted on their mortgage here, and they're able to pay it off. Oh, this is a B. There's still a lot of people that are able to pay it off, or at least not default. And then there are some people that have defaulted and gone bankrupt. And it goes down a couple more letters until you get to areas where no large bank is going to be handing out a loan because they don't think they can make a return on this. And when you're talking about investments, this is a very important mechanism because you're not handing out money for free. It's not a charity. It's an investment. You want a return on your investment. So if you are going to be handing out money willy-nilly to a place where it has the absolute worst mortgage rating, and you know that there's very little chance that 90% of the people you loan to there will pay you back, you are not going to be making loans because it is just not feasible for you to stay afloat if you're going to be doing that. And you're going to be focusing on places that do pay you back. And this is an important mechanism for the market because then what's going to happen is that since people aren't able to get loans in that area, the housing prices for that area are going to have to be driven down, which is going to make it easier for people to move in. But the Clinton and Bush administrations thought this was unacceptable and that every American that is part of the American dream, they deserve to own their own house. So they started up these programs that would make housing affordable. But still, it hinged on the ability for a bank to hand out a loan. So the interest rate on mortgages had, or at least the interest rate for the banks to hand out mortgages, had to be lowered. So the Federal Reserve started targeting lower federal funds rates. This leads to banks very eager to accept a new regulation that they cannot discriminate because they are going to be guaranteed by the Federal Reserve that even if someone goes bankrupt, they're going to get their money back because the Federal Reserve is the lender of last resorts. They are going to have low interest rates on loaning to each other, so they're not going to be having to pay back so much for every overnight loan they make. They're not going to have to pay so much to get the money to loan out to other people. And they're not risking as much. So they start handing out subprime mortgages. And I can speak from experience. You are able to walk into a bank as a complete nobody with an awful credit score, buying a house in the worst possible area, and leave with a home loan. I know because around 2006, my parents, who were more well-off at the time, went and bought two properties in Tennessee when we live in Southern Florida. And we got them for cheap. I'm talking three-story homes on a mountain. And what happened when 2008 struck? People were defaulting on their loans because just like the banks were predicting before, people getting subprime mortgages were not able to hand it back. But also for, there's, there's another detail that goes into the subprime mortgage thing. Not only were they now incentivized and legally required to hand out loans to subprime borrowers, they were also trying to make it look better for their portfolios because they, even though they were handing out these loans, they did not want to be responsible for it because there are thousands of banks across the country. They wanted to sell off these portfolios and nobody in their right mind, because there's no law requiring somebody to buy 
the subprime portfolios off of them. So they were mixing in the subprime portfolios with their, with their subprime loans, with their A and B mortgage loans. So they were selling off these mixed portfolios to eager investors, thinking that they were going to make a huge return off these people who had gotten mortgages, not realizing that they were getting screwed by the banks trying to get rid of this hot potato. And that helped lead to so many problems when the mortgage crisis started hitting. Because it has nothing to do with Glass-Steagall. It has nothing to do with any of that. People were getting things they cannot afford, which in a central banking, fractional reserve banking system, is a story as old as the system itself. When you go back to the 1920s and you look at the credit crisis, it popped because people weren't able to pay back all the things they were putting on credit. They were living beyond their means. In 2006 and 2007, you had people who come off three, four houses, buying three, four houses and promising that they were going to pay back the money. But just owning a house doesn't say that you're going to have the money to pay it back because you have two options with a house if you're trying to make money. You rent it or you flip it. And at a time where houses are so easy to come by and there's so, such a low interest rate on the mortgages, nobody's going to do either of that. Because why would you rent when you could buy a house for cheap and have it your own? You're going to make payments anyway, so why rent? And why are you going to buy a house from a person who's trying to sell it above market value to make their return if you can go to the bank and get a loan for something at or below market value? So people were living beyond their means and making shitty investments because they were incentivized by the system we have and by the powers that be to be taking these loans. And when they couldn't pay it back, suddenly there was a problem. People were bankrupting, which frees you of your loan, but it takes a, it, your credit score takes a huge hit. You're not able to really get future loans if you bankrupt too often. But there were people in mass bankrupting. There were people that they had bought these portfolios off the banks that were going under because they were not going to see a return anymore. They were shit out of luck. The banks were facing all these bankruptcies. They were facing people that they couldn't pay, you know, they couldn't give the investment from people that invested in them. And so what happened is that people are going under. The banks have no idea how to respond. Everyone is fucked. So the Fed steps in. And they do something that everybody agrees is completely unprecedented. Where instead of just printing money or lowering the interest rate or raising the interest rate or whatever, they started buying these toxic assets for the first time. Because these toxic assets were hot potatoes. Nobody knew what the hell to do with them. Nobody wanted them because there's no way to get money off them. So the Federal Reserve went to all of the banks and they said, We're going to buy these off you. And with this money, you have to not loan it out. You cannot make any more loans for the foreseeable future. So with that happening, suddenly all these toxic assets were taken off the bank's hands and they were given money for fucking up. But now if you were an entrepreneur who saw the crash as an opportunity to get something for cheap to start up your business, there was no money being flowed into your hands because the banks were not giving out as many loans as a few months prior. So they did something completely unprecedented, and then they ended up printing, at the time, 100% of the existing money supply, which was not counted in inflation numbers. It was not counted in anything. 
If you look at inflation for the year of 2008-2009, you will not see that a trillion dollars was printed into the economy. They, they do not include that. So the inflation numbers in 2020 do not reflect where they've actually been since 2008. And of course, they help fund all of the federal bailouts for companies that should have gone under a long, long time ago, but went begging to Congress, and Congress said, of course you guys can stay, you're our lobbyists. <laughs> and so money from the Federal Reserve, and they stayed afloat, and all the small businesses started going under. All the people that bought homes foolishly started going under. And of course, while the stock market was recovering, unemployment rates were still going up. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now, to apply this back to the theory that I was talking about earlier, where of how the, how the boom ends and how the, re- the recession has to be a recovery phase, what, what happened when, uh, when all the you know, home loans started failing, that was the cluster of errors. And it was concentrated in the home industry because of the regulations like Jay was talking about basically prevented banks from discriminating, but they, you know, welcomed those regulations, of course, mm-hmm. uh, for the reasons he talked about. So that was the cluster of errors co- uh, concentrated in the housing industry. And it played out exactly how I said. There were actually, if you go back and look, it's hard to find exact data on this because this wasn't something people thought to measure at the time. But there were tons of homes getting built that never finished. Construction mm-hmm. projects were just abandoned because, like I talked about, the resources weren't available and it was too expensive and proved unprofitable before they could, uh, before they could finish the, the houses. So there, uh, 2008 had like a record number of unfinished housing projects. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Yeah. And I can actually, I, I can personally attest to that because near me, this was a construction site I would pass every day on my way to school. And in 2007, you saw that, oh, they were preparing all the ground. There were all these big plans for development. They were about to start. And then 2008 finished and they did not start again until last year. That's another thing is uh, the incentives were to build bigger houses than what people could actually afford and what mm-hmm. was actually, you know, economic. Um, so that, that's why some of the projects failed, too, it's because they planned for this massive house and then the resources simply aren't available for it. They skyrocket in price. And then uh, if you look at uh, data for construction companies and stuff like that, uh, you see that the prices of their tractors and their input materials that they use um, just absolutely plummeted after the mm-hmm. crash. And that was uh, the recovery phase I was talking about. Uh, unfortunately, it was interrupted by Fed actions, like Jay was saying. But for our time there, um, you know, all the tractors, the materials like wood and stuff plummeted in price because, like I was saying, when there's, you know, artificially expanded credit, then entrepreneurs bid up these resources. Uh, bid up the prices, I should say. They Their demand for them increases the prices of these resources. Uh, and then it, it turns out that there's too much bidding for them because those resources are still being used in uh, lower orders of, of production towards the consumer side as well. And so the prices get, get too high to make any project profitable. And that's why you see a lot of these fail. And once the construction companies failed and the uh, housing projects failed and it had to be cut short, uh, then the demand for these input factors plummeted all of a sudden because, uh, you know, they, they weren't being used in projects that all failed. And so the prices fell as well. And that's what you saw at the end of the crash. It matches up perfectly with what Austrian economists predicted in, in their business cycle theory. Mm-hmm. 
And now, if you flash forward to 2020, and 2019 as well, there have been a lot of brushes with, uh, with recession. Throughout the entire 2010s, there were brushes with recession, but for about four years after 2009, the Federal Reserve kept the federal funds rate at, was it literally zero or near zero? I think it literally was zero, and it's at like yeah, it point, was, it's at point two five now. I think it was at literally zero for four years. Now, nominally, it cannot go b- 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 below zero. Well, real interest rates can go negative, but nominal interest rates cannot. Well, you would you would think that, but Europe and Japan have gone nominally but negative. Those, no, it was real interest rates that went negative. Really? I thought Europe and Japan both experimented no, you, with nominative. nominative you, no. you, you cannot go zero nominal because you will get into a liquidation trap. Well, that's so there said, is, but they tried it anyway. Yeah, no, they went real interest rates below zero. Okay. And so one of the things is that when the Federal Reserve plays with interest rates, they don't go full points at a time. They'll go at most a quarter of a point. And even that can have catastrophic effects for all the people that are so reliant on the low interest system. So you were seeing last year, the Federal Reserve was trying to go against Trump and raise the interest rates just slightly from 2% to like 2.2%. And the stock market started plummeting. Trump was saying, no, we need low interest rates. We need low interest rates. You can't go lower. And the Fed caved. And they had to lower the interest rate back to what it was, and the stock market almost immediately went back to normal. And then you now, saw... Oh, yeah? What's up? That is a sign of an unhealthy economy. Mm-hmm. If you're surviving just on cheap credit, it means your economy is driven by debt and not production. So, yep. yeah, keep, keep that in mind while Jay keeps talking. <laughs> by January, you're also seeing that, hey, uh, the stock market ain't doing too good because there were a lot of things going on that we thought at the time were the biggest things of the year, but uh, have proven not to be. <laughs> and there were some things that were going on. And you saw the stock market was plummeting until the possibility of a war was coming around and mm, they started going up again. And there was a brush with the defense the stocks had a good day. <laughs> yeah. So there was a brush with a the recession then. But the biggest brush we've had with a recession since 2008 was around February, March of this year, when suddenly the coronavirus was hitting harder and things were not moving as quickly. People were not able to really get out what they needed. And all these things were happening, namely the gas, uh, the temporary gas crisis of the last month with the futures contracts, where since gas was not moving as much, all these companies that had made contracts for the next month on where to store their, uh, their gas were panicking, trying to figure out because they didn't, There was no space to store the gas. There was no space to store this unrefined gasoline because there was not enough moving out of the warehouses that they had made futures contracts for. So there was a temporary crisis. People were afraid to go to stores. So people were afraid to go to work. The stock market was plummeting. People had no faith. Everything was going down. Now, you would have thought that this would be the moment where they go, okay, we cannot prop this bubble up any longer. It had been going on 12 years at that point. Oh, 11 and some change, but almost 12 years. You would think that there was no way, no way in hell that the Federal Reserve could inflate enough to 
bring the stock market back to what it was, which stock market, like Porter said, it's a horrible, it's 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 a horrible measure. It does not reflect the economy. I'm gonna get into that in a second. But you would you would have never thought that the Federal Reserve could print enough to fix it without causing problems from the inflation. Over a two-month period, they ended up uh, printing six trillion new dollars. Six trillion. With a T. This is more than was in circulation at the point, if I remember correctly. It's either more or roughly the same. But so again... I think it was roughly the same, yeah. So it was roughly the same. So they, again, printed about 100% of the money that is in the economy. They doubled the money supply. But the stock market started booming again. But unemployment kept going down. Because this does not help you. This does not help the person on the street. Boeing employment kept going down? Not unemployment? Yeah, uh, employment kept going down, sorry. Employment kept going down. Unemployment kept going up. This does not reflect any of us. This does not reflect the real economy. This reflects the Boeing CEO that got... How much did he get? How many billion? I think they asked for $65 billion, and if you did all the... I, I did the rough math from um, the big stimulus bill that was passed, and it came from a bunch of different areas of the bill. Of course it did, but it added up to about $65 billion. Yeah, they got just exactly what they asked $65 for. Billion. Meanwhile... The average American citizen who was forcibly put out of work by the government got $1,200 each. That comes out to where, what, 325 million people in the country? Yeah, let's see. And even if you're, yeah, that's being charitable with it because not 325 million, 330 million got checks. Right? I think the federal government spent $2 billion on stimulus for the Americans that the states put out of work. Meanwhile, Boeing, the company alone, whose planes were falling out of the sky last year. I think it's something important to remember that without their military contracts, Boeing would have gone under because they are the only company that can produce commercial airlines in this country and have no competition. Without the government, they would not be where they are. They got $65 billion. Americans got $2 billion to spread amongst themselves. Which I'm not saying the government should even hand them out money, but it's, it's clear where the interest of the American government is. And this applies back to the business cycle theory, of course, too, because like I said, the recovery phase, you have to let the bad projects fail. It's a, it's a period of hurting because there were people employed in that. There were entrepreneurs who had their life savings tied up in it, uh, stuff like that. But you have to let these bad projects fail because they're unprofitable. They're not using our resources in valuable ways. And you have to let those factor prices drop until uh, real productive, valuable enterprises can be profitable again. And so instead, what you saw was massive intervention on behalf of the federal government and the Federal Reserve and in both the financial sectors and just uh, the fiscal sector. And uh, what that does is props up these companies that should have failed. Boeing's an example, but there are tons of other Mm -hmm. ones. Zombie companies are making up an ever-growing proportion of the companies in the United States. Uh, a zombie company is defined as one that doesn't have enough revenue to pay off the interest on their debt. So they have to keep on taking out more debt just to pay off the interest of their already existing debt. 
And those are taking up, I don't know what percentage of the economy now, but it's it greatly increased in the past two years. Mm-hmm. It's, it's getting bad. <laughs> and that's, that's the result of this cheap credit. They can afford to do that for longer because they're getting bailed out by the Federal Reserve. And in some cases, like Boeing, directly by Congress. Uh, and it, there was there was a one really really great Twitter conversation I had with an idiot. Um, it was about the airline bailout because Boeing wasn't the only one to get money; they got the most. But there were there were more uh, a- airline uh, bailouts and plane builder bailouts. I don't know what to call them <laughs> construction bailouts uh, that they got money from from that stimulus bill. And the conversation on Twitter was, well, we have to bail these guys out. If we don't, we're going to have just a bunch of new airline companies all of a sudden <laughs> when, whenever demand picks back up. And then we'll have a bunch of inexperienced people and there'll be planes falling out of the sky. That's literally what he said. He said there'll be planes <laughs> falling out of the sky. I said, dude, they bailed out Boeing. <laughs> you know why they were in trouble, right? Oh, my God. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's what... That's still one of the better takes I've heard because normally the objection will be, but if these big companies are too big to fail, go under, we won't have that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, the capital exists. They have capital that can be repurposed. So if they go under, if GM goes under, you're not suddenly down five car companies. You're open to more coming in because they're going to have to liquidate that capital and sell it to smaller companies that can use that better than them. But there's also the point that if they fail and they don't get replaced, that means they could only survive by taking on basically inflation, not real savings. That means they shouldn't have existed in the first place because they're a waste of real resources (laughs) that only appeared profitable because of massive intervention on their behalf. Yeah, it's like, what if the federal government bailed out VCR companies? And we saw VCR (laughs) companies to this day, and then the government stopped bailing them out and they went away. And we have things better than DVD now. And people will be saying, but what about the VCRs? Who's going to produce VCRs when nobody wants the VCRs? Toys R Us and Blockbuster should still be around. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly the point, is they're wasting our resources and they should be repurposed. They need to go out of business in order for us to make a real recovery. Yeah. By By holding them up and keeping them in business, your life is made directly worse off because someone could be producing more value for you and that that's better for society as a whole and you that's the thing that people don't understand it's not it's not just the fact that you know their savings might get wiped out their you know stock market portfolio is is you know worse off in a recession obviously recessions affect everybody you might go might get unemployed but it goes beyond that it's your material standard of living is directly worse off because of these actions you know, I think there's one thing that we forgot to mention in all of this that is very, very important for the average person is that in this system, you cannot save, which is crucial for the development of an economy. Like we've been like Porter said earlier, and what it says law, right? That uh, production proceed. Uh, no, demand precedes production, right? No, 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 no. Uh, you have it backwards. Yeah, no, yeah. The, Keynes, the Keynesian I- version is demand precedes production. <laughs> Well, basically, the, the Keynesian version, when he inverted it to try and uh, yeah. disprove it, he said that he said supply creates its own demand, yeah. which obviously isn't true because it's not like if you just you know make anything that people are going to come buy it as soon as you make it. I dig holes. Demand come to me. <laughs> no, I specifically didn't mention Say's Law because I think we could do a whole episode. We probably that. can, but 
the, the Sparknotes <laughs> version is that production is important, and in order for real production to happen, there has to be savings. And in order for that production to turn into demand, there has to be real savings. Because then people are selective about what they buy, people are selective about what they produce. When you save, you have a healthy economy. And through this system, they have done away with, well, they think they've done away with the need to save, and they've taken away your ability to do it. So with the way that the Federal Reserve inflates and fucks with the interest rate, if you have an account where you uh, account like uh, a savings account, you're not making enough interest on nowhere near enough interest on that to keep up with inflation. Because assuming we inflate at and this is about right, an average of two percent a year, aside from a couple of spikes uh, along the way. That's that's what they aim for. Although they recently announced that they're going to get rid of that constraint, the constraint in air quotes. Uh, they they said they're not going to target that anymore. They're going to try and run it a little bit higher. Yeah, so, which I'm not surprised, but... Maybe, dude, I miss the good old days when they only decreased my purchasing power by 2% every year. Yeah. I mean, I've looked it up since the 30s up until like 2019 was the last time I looked at it. That Yeah, they did. On average, there were some years where they inflated as high as 5%. There are some years where they went to near zero. But on average, it was 2%. But no savings account even offers you a full percent of interest per year for what you put in there. No, mine is like 0.1% or something. Yeah, same here. So they offer you nowhere near enough to keep up with that. So you can't even put your money in a bank and keep up with the inflation. They've taken away your ability to save. The only way for the majority of people to save for the future is to invest in their casino of the stock market. Which just makes this all so much more perverse. Because that means you're basically... I mean, the big players in the stock market are the ones who are getting continually bailed out. Mm -hmm. You're literally forced to financially support. Well, not forced. I shouldn't say literally forced. Um, you are heavily incentivized to, if you want to actually save and make a good return on your money, you're heavily incentivized to invest and provide liquidity to the very companies who are in bed with the government and the Federal Reserve who are responsible for this whole cycle. Mm -hmm. And so... You you always come on the loser when you try to play their system. But this is the system they have set up that the, the majority of normal people will fall into. And this will continue to perpetuate itself. And this year, there was supposed to be a recession, but they have inflated a 12-year bubble even further, which is like, I'm a heavy drinker. I have to pay off for it with a hangover in the morning. If my solution was to just not stop drinking... I would collapse one day and my body would force itself to either go clean or I will die. This is what is happening to the economy. You have a bunch of alcoholics, a bunch of junkies, like Porter said earlier, they're constantly jonesing. They, instead of cleaning themselves up, instead of going through the hangover that is a recession, they are making that hangover more and more worse. So it is, and it's going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We skirted it this time, but with the way they've inflated the bubble, it's not getting better. So we mentioned earlier, we both agree it's the student loan bubble, right? Yeah, we didn't say it out loud, but that's what we were going for. So let's draw the parallels real quick with the, the mortgage crisis. So artificially cheap credit plus regulations that basically made the banks unaccountable for making bad loans because they would get bailed out if they did. 
and and that came to fruition. They were right. They they knew they were going to get bailed out, and they well, did. You know what? Since 2010, yeah. it's not even the banks that give out student loans anymore. It's all guaranteed by the federal government. That's exactly what I was about to say. Now, um, it's guaranteed by the federal government, plus you uh they're not included in bankruptcy proceedings mm-hmm. so so you can't you you basically can't default on your student loans you can thank joe biden There's... for that one too <laughs> that's right i forgot that was him yeah he really is so awful <laughs> he, he's everywhere in the news today he he's responsible for the uh the crime bill uh largely responsible for qualified immunity and uh Militarization of police. He was the first one to put student, over a major surveillance bill. That's right, the, and the student loan crisis now on top of it. Student, <laughs> he is he's really he is up there with like Hillary Clinton and George Bush for horrible politicians. Well, George Bush, Dick Cheney, actually, but we all know who was really pulling the strings. Yeah, there was a <laughs> there's a meme that's like it says the left america is systemically racist <laughs> joe the system biden and it's the, like looking around meme you know <laughs> so that's he's yeah he's been in all of this since forever but we're kind of yeah, digressing we are it had to be brought up <laughs> it did <laughs> so yeah now the student loan crisis is what's next it, first it was everybody ought to be able to buy a home now everybody has to go to college, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody should be able to go to college. And uh, this is where we are. We're gonna, we created a massive bubble. There are tons of loans that people can't pay back. It's like $1.1 trillion now and counting. You can go to the student loan debt clock. It has its own debt clock now. <laughs> That's how you know it's bad. Let's look it up. <laughs> yeah, see what it is now. Look it up while I'm talking. But uh yeah, that's that's the next bubble. Eventually, it's going to have to pop. I don't know what all what it's going to look like exactly. One point seven trillion dollars. Yeah, it'll almost certainly spill into over, spill over into other sectors, just like the last crisis did. Uh, it's just that regulations have made the cluster of errors concentrated more in in this sector. But uh, think about what that means for uh, factor prices, the the input prices into into student loans and stuff like that. Uh, we could see a big deflation in college prices as all of a sudden they can't attract people, stuff like that. Uh, there, there's really no telling exactly what it might look like. We can only predict vaguely um, what might happen, but we do know there's a giant bubble there and it's got to pop at some point. Mm. It's just a matter of logic and, and reality. And it has to. Think about the people carrying that loan who their bubble will burst. I mean, this is a lot of... I'm going to say highly educated people, but they're people in higher levels of labor. I mean, this is doctors, lawyers, engineers, architects, all these sorts of people that they are going to eventually lose it all because the student loan bubble bursts and then they can't pay it back. And we're going to see the same shit with the bank. So think about what an effect that's going to have with such high level loans, just like the mortgages, but directly affecting so many high level people. It's a little scary. So how do we avoid it? <laughs> we can't avoid the bubble, but you can. How do you insulate yourself from it? You know, that's not our area of expertise, but there, there are ways. How do you insulate yourself? I mean, you have to number one get yourself off this currency, no matter what it is. I don't care if you own a crypto, but gold and silver at least. 
silver's doubled in prices mm-hmm. in like the last two weeks actually it's not going to be like an investment in like the stock market like one day you're just going to be rich and then one day you could lose it all this is a long-term steady investment that is going to make sure you always have something you can spend when it goes to shit because you know gold and silver coins will always be accepted and try to be self-sufficient where you can i mean look at all the people who in the last few months have picked up home gardening yeah, that's exactly right. The The more you have access to shorter supply lines and self-sufficiency and stuff like that, the less your material standard of well-being is going to be impacted. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Carl has talked about creating your own energy. That's what he spent the last 25 years of his life on was uh, experimenting with uh, local produced energy, actually. He was one of the first ones on the uh, solar panels jump and stuff like that. Oh, you know what's the funny thing about solar panels in Florida? So What's that? You know how like Bell South split up into a bunch of uh, regional companies that all have the monopoly in each state for energy and telephone yeah. and all that? Yeah, so over here it's FPL, uh, Florida Power and Light. And in 2016, they got something onto the Florida amendment for the uh or the florida ballot to be made into an amendment for a florida constitution where they did all this tricky legal wording to make it sound like oh do you want to be able to keep your energy from a solar panel vote yes what it actually meant was if you vote yes for this and it gets onto the ballot for like the politicians who are going to vote yes on it because we pay them off then you are not going to own any of the solar energy you produce we're going to take it from you we're going to forcefully buy it off you. You get to keep enough to produce your home, and we're going to direct that back to you, but we keep your surplus. And it passed. So if you have a solar panel in Florida, you don't own your own energy, and it is illegal for you to take the surplus runoff energy and store it in batteries. So uh, channeling the sun is now an agorist uh, activity? Yes. <laughs> Hell yeah. yes. it is. And so, try to be self-sufficient. Live free of debt. Where you can, avoid debt. Like we said earlier, don't get five credit cards. And if you get a single credit card, make sure you're only buying things that you can pay off with it. And always pay it off. And savings, you're going to need... Or or if you're really risky, get as many credit cards as you can. Take out as much debt as you can and use it to buy gold and silver. (laughs) But I, I wouldn't. I, I, wouldn't I don't advise that. that. I don't advise that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't either. Uh, but it is a you know possibility. If you think it's going to collapse extremely soon, then you could get away with it. <laughs> I would not advise it. Though. Live debt free. If you're if you're planning on going to college, stay local. Go to a place where, I mean, these fuckers, with the amount that you know, if the federal government is going to be handing out free money to go to college, and you're not going to pay a single cent, fuck it. Take that money. Take the surplus, put it into gold, put it into crypto, do that sort of shit. That's what I've been doing. You know, these idiots, they pay me. I get like 2,000 extra back a semester. That goes into important shit away from their system. And so I was just about to say that. Yeah, I'm not taking any federal loans or any loans at all. I just have some state funded scholarships funded by the lottery here and then a, a few from the school. I'm getting paid $3,000 to go to school this semester in the fall. <laughs> so take that out. And put it into other things. Put it into precious metals. Put it into crypto. Put it into guns. I mean, you're always going to need guns and bullets. 
That's very important. I'm going to put it into a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> That's also very important because you're, use, you're using it to, the, to go against the state. Uh, That's right. <laughs> and savings. I mean, you have the ability to save for yourself. Like, even if you're not going to directly buy crypto or whatever, or gold or whatever, you are still able to, if you make a paycheck, take a couple of dollars out of that every month and keep it to yourself. Don't put it in a bank account because the savings account is going to do shit for you, but put it somewhere where you're not going to touch it and you're going to be able to accumulate money. And when you hedge yourself like this against the system, you are always going to be in a better position when it crashes and then maybe you can capitalize on the crash. And it is going to suck in the meantime. We should add that. Oh, it's Because terrible. like we talked about earlier, like we talked about earlier, this symptom is, system is designed for you to not save. It does everything it can to prevent you from saving. It wants you to consume as much as possible, use up your paycheck every month, whatever. You have to go against it in the meantime. It'll seem irrational at the time, but we know from this solid theory that's played out again and again, we, we know from this very sound theory that the crash is going to come and then your saving is going to come to fruition. Fruition. It'll all be worth it as soon as you, as soon as it crashes, and you're in a better spot than anyone else who did exactly what they wanted them to. It's going to be really painful. You might get laid off. Your family might get laid off. Your friends might get laid off. I know that my family, we're not going to get laid off. But if there's a really nasty recession, we might be out of a job entirely. So you also should, if you're getting a job, try to find something that you are going to be essential. And make yourself essential. If you're going to work and you're not working for yourself, you're going to work for somebody else. Develop the skills, put in the effort, make sure that when the time comes that they're handing out the pink slips, that you are not going to be one of them. Make sure that you are crucial to who you're working for and an essential person who cannot be let go no matter the economic situation. And with that, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. I think we covered everything. Yep. yep. So, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Uh, you're listening to iTunes. Leave a five-star uh, rating. Leave a review. Maybe if you idiots actually start leaving reviews that are funny, we might actually start reading them. You guys have been slacking on that. If you're on YouTube, leave a like, leave a comment, share the podcast with your friends, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, more importantly, in my opinion. I think we're funnier on Twitter lately. Uh, anything else? Well, I'm funnier on Twitter. You're kind of average. But. Oh, fuck you. What's your most viral tweet <laughs> right now, huh? I'm joking. Yeah, that's why I thought, asshole. Your, your, redhead, your redhead meme still pretty We still need to talk about that one in yeah. after hours, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah. All right, well, uh, we'll catch you next time. Yeah. Uh, see you later, guys.